Do you want more fearless feminist podcasts in your life? Looking for something to listen to in between episodes of Brave Not Perfect? Check out Popaganda. It's a feminist podcast that comes out twice a month about pop culture from bitch media. It's hosted by Carmen Rios. She's this fabulous feminist writer, editor, and digital media superstar. And right now you can listen to Popaganda's heat season. Carmen sits down with feminist activists, thinkers, and legends alike. They grapple with the urgency of a feminist future while envisioning what culture change could really look like. And they talk about everything from avoiding burnout when you're fighting for much needed change to the Spice Girls. Get each episode while it's still hot. And don't miss a minute of the burning questions Carmen delves into with her guests. Listen and subscribe to Popaganda wherever you get your feminist podcast fix. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect. I'm Rashma Sajani, and I'm on a mission to dismantle the cult of perfection so women can live their boldest, most authentic life. I'm the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, and every week on this podcast, we're looking at the way society trains us to strive for that unattainable ideal of perfection and what we can do to break free of it and to live a more authentic and happier life. This week, we explore why young girls often aren't raising their hands and how those same fears and anxieties manifest to hold us back later in life. I feel like, why, why should I try if I'm not gonna be able to do this perfectly? And we explore why it's so vital to push back some of those fears and advocate for ourselves, even when someone in authority is telling us we're wrong. Medical providers are sometimes being gatekeepers in ways that harm us either physically or psychologically and give us all these complexes about our our own intuition about our bodies. And of course, I've got another Everyday Bravery Challenge for you at the end of the show. But first, I want to introduce you to Dr. Joy Bradford. She's a psychologist in Georgia who specializes in supporting Black girls and women. Dr. Joy hosts an amazing podcast called Therapy for Black Girls, where she works to present mental health topics in a way that's accessible and relevant to women in her community. She was kind enough to sit down with me for this really thoughtful conversation about the unique ways perfectionism affects Black women. What I want to talk about today is the pressures that women of color feel about not being perfect and whether bravery is a privilege for the few and not all of us. You know, I want to talk about like, you know, how race and racism can make women feel these unique pressures, right? To be perfect, right? Not to conform to negative stereotypes to feel like, you know, if I screw up, then I'm screwing up for the entire race, like the entire community, Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so you've already said a mouthful, so I don't even know how <laughs> how we're going to unpack all of that, you know, but I, I completely agree with that sentiment, you know, and many of us as Black women are taught from very early on that you have to work twice as hard to get half the amount of, um, you know, success or recognition. Um, so we are kind of groomed really early on to kind of always be overcompensating. And so this idea of 
perfection is something, um, you know, that kind of is drilled into us from a very early age sometimes. And then, of course, when you get older and realize like perfect does not really exist. Right. Um, It can be really hard to break some of those patterns that have kind of been ingrained in us for a while. So, like, that's the thing I really struggle with. Right. Because as women of color, we have had to work twice as hard. But like, it's not like we're on top of the world, right? Like, it's not that we're leading the world. And so all this perfectionism hasn't gotten us anywhere. But then on the flip side, we know that there's a cost for failure. There's a higher cost for failure, higher cost for risk taking. So what do you tell your clients to do? Yeah, so I I back them up to where you just kind of started, right? This whole idea of, yeah, you've worked really hard, and how has that worked for you? It probably hasn't, <laughs> right. right? So so can we expand this narrative of what it even means to be successful? Are you measuring success based on someone else's metrics that will never fit for you? Um, you know, so I think a lot of it kind of requires taking a holistic approach to really changing some of our ideas about what it even means to be successful, and do you even want to continue playing that game that leaves us feeling burned out and sick and frustrated and stressed out. You know, if you keep playing that long enough, then those things are likely to happen. So how can we maybe shift or expand your ideas about what success means in a way that will actually allow you to win? In my social media communities, you know, related to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast, there are lots of conversations just around people feeling incredibly frustrated in workspaces, um, you know, feeling like their ideas are not valued. Um, You know, you will often hear this kind of common refrain of you can make a suggestion at a staff meeting, right? But then somebody else and nobody hears you, but then somebody else kind of rephrases what you say and then everybody's like, oh, that's a great idea, right? Um, You know, so... So just some of the common frustrations of just kind of feeling invisible and not validated um, for the brilliance, quite frankly, that they are bringing to these different spaces. So what are some of the strategies you, you advise them to do? Yeah, so I will often, um, if they can, encourage them to pair up with someone in the workspace who is a safe person, Um, you know, because if that's kind of the dynamic that's going to be playing out, then I'm going to strategize to make sure that my ideas do get out there, even if I am not the one who has to take credit for it. Um, So that is one of the things that I sometimes suggest. Um, I also think it's really important, again, like we said, to kind of think about, are these environments that really are set up for you to be successful? successful and to be thriving. I am really encouraged um, to see so many Black women kind of opening businesses and spaces for themselves and then really making a commitment to bringing other Black women on board um, so that we are creating these environments for ourselves where we can be authentic, we can be all of ourselves and flourish and win together. Um, That's, I think, what feels most encouraging and powerful to me now is that people are no longer waiting to say, okay, I'm going to bust into this system and kind of try to infiltrate my way to the top. It's much more of, I'm going to create my own system where we can all win together and we don't have to play by those same rules anymore. So my parents came here as refugees, escaped violence. My father changed his name from Mukun to Mike just so he could get a job. And so I very much grew up in a family that was, I was very aware of like the sacrifices that they had made, like the struggles that they had gone through. I was one of the few like Indian families in our neighborhood, like our house would get teepeed and spray painted. So I always felt this pressure that, like, I couldn't make a mistake. Like, I couldn't let them down. And that I had to make choices that were going to make 
there's struggle worth it. And found myself kind of in my 30s in a job I hated, like in a life I didn't want. Um, and finally kind of found the courage to quit and just to say to my father, like, I just, I can't. And it's funny, he said to me, you know, in Hindi, he said, beta, it means daughter. He said, beta, finally. Because he had seen my unhappiness. So how was it for you, you know, in, in that in that kind of cultural struggle with perfectionism and living the life that you needed to live for your family or for your ancestors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we kind of alluded to that in the beginning, this whole idea that um, if I mess up, then do I close the doors for every other black woman who comes behind me? Right. Um, You know, so I have the only PhD in my family. And so for me, it it has always been a, a feeling of kind of I'm doing this for my family, right? Like that, that this is our degree, um, that I could not have done this without you. And, and you know, fortunately, um, you know, there was never the pressure of, um, you know, like I had to have a certain kind of degree or that I couldn't kind of explore the kinds of things that I wanted. But I do remember always feeling very aware of wanting to make my family proud and, and, and really wanting, you know, my parents to be able to have something um, to kind of say. And, and I don't even know where that pressure came from. Right. Because it wasn't um, it wasn't the kind of thing where they said you have to do this thing to make us proud. Um, and I think, you know, getting some of the reinforcement of how proud they were made me want to continue to do some of those things things. Does your mother used to tell you, like, if, if you mess up, you're messing it up for generations of Black women? Or is that something you told yourself? Where did you feel like you first heard that or learned that or was taught that? I have no clue. And you know, that's such a great question. So it definitely is not something that came from my mother. And so it's probably something that I maybe learned just in looking around, right? And looking in spaces where I was maybe the only one. I don't think that there was ever a message that was explicitly given to me. Um, And I don't even know that that's true, right? Like, I don't know that, you know, do the people who don't look like us see one of us being successful and then say, hey, we will allow more of them into this space now. Like, I don't even know if that's true, you know? So going back to the conversation we had about like this perfectionism not actually working for us. Okay, what are the records, right? Like, so I was the first one and how many have followed after me? (laughs) That probably is not even something that's adding up. Yeah, I mean, every single one of the Black women in my life feel exactly how you feel. I think for women in the South Asian community, it may be less about like, you know, about that, but it's this feeling of perfectionism that, that comes from our families and our culture. So all of us have it, and I bet for Latina women, it's the same feeling, but it's coming from a different place. Same result, though, right? Because what net happens is we stay stuck in jobs, stuck in relationships, stuck in things for whatever reason, but we're stuck, and we're not moving up the leadership ladder, and we're not taking risks, Yeah. And again, conversations like this then help people to realize, like, I don't have to be stuck here. Right. I can have this difficult conversation with my father or with whoever I'm thinking is going to be displeased. And then you then you realize, like, oh, I could have made this decision a long time ago. Right. Like he was just waiting for me to take this step. You know, so, again, when we are authentic and and are not afraid to share our real experiences, we sometimes don't know how that will shift our lives. Right. Because we do this game in our heads of. I'm going to say this and they're going to say this. But what happens when it doesn't go that way, right? And then it actually unfolds in a way that is in your favor. You know, we don't often play out that scenario. We only play out the one where we don't get what we need and want. 
I think it's also really important um, if we're talking about being vulnerable and sharing our stories, because that perfectionism doesn't just exist in like the outside world. It sometimes exists between us, too. Right. And so we need to be perfect for one another because we're supposed to be strong black women. Right. And so I can't let you see that I've struggled because what does that mean about what you think about me? Right. And so I think I have been really appreciative for the ways that we are um, showing each other grace and allowing those facades to crack and for us to really see each other. And you talk about this, you had an episode on your podcast of the black superwoman trope, right? Can you talk more about that and talk about the power of vulnerability and, and, and negative emotions and honesty? Yeah. So, you know, that is one of those stereotypes in the black community that feels like it's very difficult to get rid of, um, because I think for some people, there is real power in being seen as a superwoman, right? Like superwoman swoops in and saves the day. And so who doesn't necessarily want to be, you know, like the superhero, right? Um, but when you peel that back and you really think about like the toll that maintaining that kind of identity has on you, it can really lead to lots of negative health and emotional outcomes. Um, You know, so it's really important to not feed into this idea that you always have to have it together, that you are the only one in your family who anybody can go to, because quite often that then means that there is nobody for you to go to. And so then maybe you have not cultivated a support system for yourself, or you don't feel comfortable saying, hey, I'm struggling in this moment because you're seen as the one who always has to have it together, right? And so it really is important, I think, for us to kind of unpack that idea of what it means to be this strong Black woman. And you are now seeing that kind of reinforced even outside of the community. Um, All of these ideas about listen to Black women and Black women will save us and, you know, that kind of thing. Black women don't want that responsibility, right? Like we... We just want to be left alone to kind of take care of ourselves. We don't want to have the responsibility of having to save everybody and take care of everybody. Um, You know, it's kind of fine that if you feel like we are good decision makers that you then get on board and make the same kinds of decisions. But don't put that responsibility on us. You pay attention to the information that's out there and make a good decision for yourself as well. It's powerful. So where can people find more about you and learn more about your work? Yeah, so you can visit our online home at therapyforblackgirls.com where you will find all of the podcast episodes we've talked about as well as other incredible resources related to all kinds of mental health topics. Well, thank you, Dr. Joy. I hope we had a chance to meet in person. Same. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. When I went on my book tour for Brave Not Perfect, I saw it over and over again. When the Q&A started, almost all the questions were coming from men. Think about that for a minute. Almost all the questions at an event focused on empowering women and encouraging them to speak up for themselves came from men. Now, what happens when men aren't in the room taking up all that space? Well, earlier this year, I was in D.C. for a Girls Who Code event with congressional leadership to discuss closing the gender gap in tech. More than 100 students and former students from Girls Who Code programs were there. And at the end, I took questions with Tiffany Cross. She's the co-founder and managing editor of a news platform that's focused on people of color shaping national policy. It's called The Beat DC. Tiffany had to actually call on someone before any questions were asked. So I think we're going to take some questions from the girls now, the both of us. Come on. Okay. And now questions from the audience. (laughs) 
Don't be shy. I want to see those hands shot up in the air. I'm going to call on people if mm -hmm. I don't see hands. Somebody has questions, I know. All right, I'm calling on people. You, right there in the front. And look, I get it. The women on my book tour, those girls at the event, they're thinking about their question. They're perfecting it. They're writing it down. They're scared to say it because they don't want to sound stupid, because they're trying to be perfect. And all those messages, they have an impact. Just take a listen to what some high schoolers told us about how perfection impacts their lives. They're all students from the Girls Who Code Summer Immersion Program. I hold myself to a very high expectation. So if I feel like I'm not going to achieve that expectation, I feel like, why should I try if I'm not going to be able to do this perfectly? And that's even something that I'm facing now with colleges because you look at like what their standards are and maybe you're a little bit below that. And I just feel like I have no shot at all. Even if it's like somewhere that I've always dreamed of going, I feel like I have no chance of getting in. Yeah, I just feel like I, I won't try if I feel like I can't do as good as I would want myself to do. Like usually in class, in school, like I'm usually a shy person. I don't usually ask questions ever. If I have a question, I'll ask like after class privately with a teacher. Um, so I sit there and I, I'm like, okay, this sounds like a good question. I think I should ask it. And then I'll figure out like a good way to word it. And then I'm like, you know what? This sounds kind of dumb. Maybe I shouldn't because I don't want everyone to be like, oh, she sounds stupid. Uh, I feel like in my school, I have like a reputation that like I'm smart. So when I say something, I feel like I like like I overthink it a lot before I say it. So I say it in my head like four different times. And then when I say it, like finally, I like rethink it again. Did I say that enough? Did it sound good enough or whatever? You just heard from Bella, Aisha and Briff. And these messages of perfection, they stick with us. When we grow up, we're still worried about sounding dumb still scared to apply to those jobs we're not 100% qualified for, still worried about taking up space in meetings, even if we're power women. Take, for instance, my friends Carly and Danielle. They're CEOs of The Skim, and were recently at a board meeting where everybody was talking about BUs. They had no idea what that meant and were even whispering to one another, just trying to figure out what everyone was talking about. Finally, they just asked, and then someone told them BUs meant business units, and it was all over. And sure, asking a silly question can be scary, but men, they ask silly questions all the time. So whether it's clarification about something at a meeting or something you want to ask a speaker at an event, take up the space and ask the question. One of the students at the Girls Who Code Summer program you just heard from a moment ago has a motto that really stuck with me. I think Briff's words can teach us a thing or two about letting go. If it won't matter in five years, then it shouldn't matter for five minutes. So if it annoys you for five minutes, then let it go. But it shouldn't be like a grudge to be held, because that's one thing I can't do. I can't hold a grudge. Like, it'll hurt my head that, that, that I held that grudge. I'll just forget about it. And, like, that's, that's my thing for perfection. If it won't matter, then don't, just, just, just let it go. Ah, that's so right. Having enough confidence to ask a silly question is one thing, but it takes a whole different level of bravery to push back against authority and power, especially when that authority and power is undermining you. 
That's why small acts of bravery, they're so important. So when the moments come where you need to stand up for yourself, you're ready. Yamani Hernandez, she knows a thing or two about that. She's the executive director of the National Network of Abortion Funds. And we had this frank and honest conversation about standing up for yourself. I'm going to share this conversation with you because I hope it helps you have the power to do the same. I want to start off by asking you to share a story that you recently told on social media. It was about advocating for yourself with a doctor. Yeah. So um, I called my doctor in advance, um, my doctor's office in advance, and told them that I would like to get on PrEP, um, which is the medicine that helps avoid contracting HIV. And I was going, I was going to a trip to Africa, um, to Senegal specifically, and I was meeting somebody online, um, actually on Twitter, um, I had been talking to for years, and we we're finally meeting in person, and I knew we were going to have sex, and I had been in a um, a relationship, a six-year relationship that ended really badly, where there was just like a massive amount of lying. And I just was like, even if I love somebody and I know they love me, I just don't trust mutual monogamy anymore. And I got there to the appointment, um, started, you know, it's like, hey, I'm here to get my prep prescription. And um, as a nurse practitioner, and she's like, oh, prep isn't for you. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, prep isn't for straight women. And I was like, well, first of all, I'm not straight. And I was like, I've been coming here for 10 years, um, like literally 10 years. And it should be in my chart. You should know this. And she's like, well, are you saying that you would have sex with a woman? And I was like, well, I have had sex with a woman. I was like, gender doesn't decide who I have sex with. And I was like, I told you I'm traveling to Africa. Like, I told you also that I know that Black women or assigned women at birth are like a fast growing population of new cases of HIV. And I was like, there's a campaign actually (laughs) to get Black women on PrEP. And she's like, well, we take a really conservative view to prep and it's just not for you. And she said, you know, I'm sorry that I miscalculated in your in your presentation and your sexuality. And I said, well, would you be willing to document that in my chart? Because I had seen on Twitter people talking about actually the maternal mortality rate and saying that when you're denied services, then you should ask them to document it. And she said, it'll take me a while to write my notes. And I said, I'll wait. And she came back in, she left the room, she came back in and she said, you know what, I changed my mind. You presented a compelling case and you know, you know um, what's best for you. And I was like, oh, so you're saying you'll write the prescription? And she's like, yes. Wow. Wow. So it's clear that like doctors aren't listening to women about our bodies. They're belittling our pain. I experienced this so many times um, in my fertility journey, I have something called APS. And so every time I got pregnant, my body would attack the fetus. And so I had, you know, five plus miscarriages. And I learned through that process to advocate for myself because I'd have a miscarriage and people like, oh, you're just old, right? Your eggs are bad. Or, you know, it's always me. And nobody really wanted to give me more information. And so I had to learn how to kind of read and talk to people and, like, figure it all out. And so it's clear, like, for a woman of color, especially if you're black, right, that this is even a bigger problem. 
Yeah, I, I don't know about all of the consequences of severity. I mean, I know the ones that I have read, like, you know, Serena Williams almost died because a nurse wouldn't listen to her. And when she was telling her she needed a clotting medicine or, you know, Beyonce talks about her birth and having having to have an emergency C-section. I know for myself, the extreme part of it comes more from um, I'm 41 and for my entire life, Basically, when I started getting my period, I started growing like a full beard. I basically started having the same puberty developments that boys have. And I would go to the doctor and ask my mom, like, I kept saying, like, I feel like something else is going on and I don't know what it is. And they kept saying, well, just use Nair, use wax. Like, there's some stuff called Veniqua, like all these things like about hair removal. And they never tested my hormones. I had all these different insurances where I would ask for a referral to an endocrinologist and they would always say, you don't need that. Um, it's just a cosmetic issue. And last year I was a trauma rehab program where I got like this full body workup and I found out that I'm intersex. I have a condition called hyperandrogenism that is like Castor Samaya and Duty Chan, these athletes that are, you know, coming onto all these scrutiny for having higher levels of testosterone and that that's what I have. And like, why did I have to go 40 years to figure out this thing about my body and also like about my identity? Um, and I always have had like really mixed feelings around like gender and, you know, my gender rather. And it like explains so many things that I thought were like psychological that I'm like, oh, this is actually partially a biological Thing, and why should anybody have to go through that? And so I feel like there's just this gap where medical providers are sometimes being gatekeepers in ways that harm us either physically or psychologically and give us all these complexes about our, our own intuition about our bodies like you talked about. So how do you think this conversation is related to the conversation we're having right now about reproductive justice? Yeah, it's <laughs> there's so many layers to that. I think one of them is that the fundamental reason why abortion in particular is that we're not trusted to know our own bodies and what we need for our own families. Um, there's all these myths that, you know, oh, if you have an abortion, you're anti-child, you're anti-family. Um, they, you know, the anti-choice people basically take this like moral high ground. We realize that it's hogwash because, you know, 60% of people who have abortions are already parenting. It's not about whether you want to parent or not parent. Exclusively, it's about whether you have the resources to be the kind of parent that you want to want to be. So I think it's all about distrust and not trusting people to know what's best for their lives and their families and trying to control that that information, that access. And um, whether you're talking about abortion, whether you're talking about uh, other aspects of reproductive justice, like the ability to give birth and, you know, black women are deciding whether or not they give birth based on these mortality rates, too, like. Maybe it's not safe to be pregnant because you risk dying even here. And then for those of us who are parenting already, you know, it's a scary time to parent with the ways that youth of color are targeted by police. That's another aspect of reproductive justice is like being able to parent the children that you have free from harm and having safety for your family. So it's a tricky time. And I think that this is definitely related. I work with abortion funds that are really trying to change the way that folks seeking abortion are empowered in the process. 
you know, they're doing intensive case management to help them understand, like, what you're experiencing right now is an injustice. Roe v. Wade has never been a promise to abortion access, unfortunately. So, like, the legal right to abortion has not necessarily ensured that you actually get access because if you can't afford it, you can't get access. You share a lot about the things that you've gone through, which I think is really powerful. I always feel like in many ways it's like those who've been put through a lot in life sometimes hold the, I don't know, the opportunity to share some of that. Because especially in the world with social media, everything's so fake. Like we often don't tell the truth. You know, after I went through my miscarriages and my fertility, I was doing the same thing. And I remember when I would, you know, if I was being interviewed by a reporter who said, you know, what, what are some of the biggest challenges you've gone through? I'd be like, having five miscarriages. And she or he would edit that piece out. It was almost as if, right, like they were uncomfortable that I was sharing that. And I wanted to share it so that other people didn't feel like they were alone, you know, because especially around miscarriages, especially around abortions, especially around fertility, we, we always think, oh, it's only me. I'm the only one. It's only me whose body is almost rallying against the very thing that I want it to do. So how did you, how did that happen for you? Like, how did you get the courage or the bravery to start sharing your most painful moments? Part of it is therapeutic for me. Like I shared about my miscarriage as well and wishing that I had a doula because I had basically an an emotionally abusive partner at that time. And for me, a part of you mentioned the word gaslighting earlier, like for me, part of being able to tell the story is being able you know, to say that it was real after you have been. I mean, even if you're not dealing with an emotionally abusive situation, just like you're saying, going through five miscarriages is like some part of it, even for yourself, is like, this is unbelievable. Like, nobody told me that this was going to happen. Like, how is this happening? What's happening? One thing that I took away from that Black women taught me to, you know, advocate for myself with the doctor was like, we actually keep each other safe by telling our stories. Like, we actually figure out mysteries and things that other people aren't able to the other people are gatekeeping knowledge about um, by by having like an oral record and oral history around. And for every person that feels like, oh, that's oversharing, there's like five to 10 more people that are like, oh my God, thank you for for saying that because like it validated what I experienced. For me, it's it's therapeutic to share and it also therapeutic to understand that other people have gone through things that I've gone through and see how they're healing from them and um, how I could potentially heal from them. That's the thing. I feel so grateful to have gone through that to be able to help other women not feel the pain that I felt. Because I definitely felt in the eight years that I went through that, I had to always show up, always act like everything was okay, always hide my pain. you know. And I remember, I think it was after my third miscarriage, I just broke down. And I remember the nurse looking at me saying, you have to stop. You have to stop getting pregnant. You have to take a break for you, right? And she was the only one in that moment who kind of knew my pain because I would walk out of those rooms and just go back to my Girls Who Code thing, go back to giving a speech, go on TV, do my thing. And it was killing me. You know, the, the duality of the life that I was living was literally breaking me. And I think that's why telling our stories is so important and powerful, yeah, I also um, I worry about this image and the way that we can like build leaders and public figures up to be these infallible people that are 
you know, perfect and it's unattainable to be like them or, you know, or people target those people because they feel like, oh, they're living these, you know, super privileged lives that have no pain and all those kind of things. And for me, it's really important if I'm going to be a public figure or a leader for people to see me as a whole person and not see me as like the propped up at the podium person, but like that I'm doing that. And, you know, I have a child with disabilities. I have had a miscarriage. I've had an abortion. I've had an abusive partner. I've had mental health breakdowns, you know, like all of these things, because um, social media can make it seem like everything is just all sanitized yeah. and perfect all the time. And I think people need to know the real. Thousand percent. Or even when they're, we're showing it, it's like, look, there she is breastfeeding, you know. Oh, it's a baby on the congressional floor. I mean, it's like we're showing these images that society can accept. And that's not the truth. Yeah. Powerful. This was an incredible conversation. I think like I learned. I learned so much. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. No, thank you for sharing. I mean, hopefully people will listen to this and and will help some folks. All right. For your bravery challenge this week, I want you to advocate for yourself. Do one thing you know you should do to stick up for yourself, but it feels a little uncomfortable. If you don't voice your ideas in meetings, push yourself to do it this week. If you don't know the answer to something, don't be embarrassed. Just ask. If you're overwhelmed at work or at home, maybe it's time to ask for some more support. Whether it's calling someone out who's not treating you right or asking a question that feels a little dumb, I want you to be brave this week and take up a little space. Everyone is different. As we're going through the challenges, not every challenge is going to be right for everyone who's listening. So if there's a challenge one week that doesn't make sense for you, do something else brave. Once you've done your challenge, I want to hear about it. How did it go? You can leave me a voicemail at 347-76-BRAVE. Again, that's 347-76-B-R-A-V-E. You can also call that number to ask me questions or share your Brave Not Perfect story. We might even share your message on the show. You can find that number in the description of this episode. And we've got a Brave Not Perfect story to share with you right now. Hi, I'm Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network. In December 2017, my mom decided to run for Congress. And I looked around, and I really felt like the human stories of the record number of women who were running for office weren't being told very well. So I got sort of obsessed with it. And learning more about those people inspired me to learn more about the many people whose stories aren't being told well. And so I decided that I wanted to start a company where those stories would be told. I think the scariest thing was actually just taking the leap. I got really awesome advice from a bunch of people who all basically asked, like, what's the worst that could happen? And I asked myself that question and realized that the worst was something I could handle. So now we are a little more than a year in. We're doing just awesome stuff. Things are just really rocking and rolling. Oh my gosh. Ah, starting a business is so brave and it's so scary. And I actually want to tell you about a podcast Jenny's company, Wonder Media Network, is making right now. It's a five-minute show profiling groundbreaking women throughout history. It's called Encyclopedia Womanica. Each month has a different theme. And this month, they're telling some stories I think are especially important, particularly for my girls who code. 
You can hear about a different pioneering woman in STEM every weekday this month. The incredible scientists, inventors, groundbreaking researchers, and doctors that have changed the way our society functions. I'm so glad they're lifting up these brave and brilliant women. You can listen to Encyclopedia Womanica wherever you get your podcasts. And for everyone listening, I want to invite you to an incredible Brave Not Perfect community. We got a really supportive Facebook group where everyone shares their Brave Not Perfect stories. You can connect with me and other listeners, and it's super easy to find. Just look up Brave Not Perfect on Facebook. You'll find me there. Okay, next week, you're going to want to tune in because I'm going to do the scariest thing of all. Oh, Lord, not ready for this, but I guess I'll be seeing you next week. Uh. Hey, everyone. If you enjoyed today's show, it would help us out so much if you could tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That'll help more people find the show so we can spread the Brave Not Perfect movement. I'm Ashley Dejan, your executive producer. Tanya Zapronik and Charlotte Stone, my co-conspirators, helped produce this week's episode. And Bill Lance, editor extraordinaire, took this one to the finish line. We, of course, couldn't do it without Deborah Singer and Jenny Josephson, who give us that boost we need like a morning cup of coffee. Plus, I want to give a shout out to the fabulous Anna Nelson. She coordinated our visit to the Girls Who Code Summer Immersion Program. And a special thanks to the incredible Corinne Roller, Giselle Cordero, Ashley Gramby, and Zenzelay Skylark. They all made that event in D.C. with congressional leadership happen. Coming up next week, we've got an extra special show for you. So stick around.